Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on March 25th of 2012 under the headline, Shanghai in Astoria. Port City was once a perilous place. Here we go. You could think of the last couple decades of the 1800s as the golden age of shanghaiing on the West Coast. Pick the wrong place to stop for a drink or rent a room for the night or even just walk down the wrong street at the wrong time of night and an innocent bystander could wake up the next morning to the vigorous kicks and curses of a bucko second mate huddled on the deck of a four-masted bark headed for Hong Kong. One of the worst ports for this practice, a port where almost anyone doing almost anything could find himself suddenly out at sea, was Astoria. The term Shanghai was coined by a preacher in San Francisco in 1855, the height of the gold rush. The term referred to a particularly aggressive form of a practice known as crimping. The term crimping comes from a Dutch word, krimp, a holding pen or tank for live fish. The basic idea is that you set up a boarding house for sailors where they can stay on credit while they're ashore. That way, more of their money is available to spend on debauchery. Eventually, the sailor's money is all gone, and he is simply living in the boarding house, still on credit. He repays that credit by shipping out when the boarding house operator gets an order from a ship captain who needs a crew member. When that happens, the boarding house operator places the sailor on an outbound ship, presenting a claim against his future earnings to cover his room and board. Rarely did the sailor go willingly back to sea. They always wanted to stay on land a little longer. So sometimes the sailor had to be rendered unconscious with a shot of whiskey laced with laudanum. The grateful ship captain would then pay the crimp a bonus of $30 to $90 per sailor, depending on market conditions. This bonus was popularly called blood money. This was what you might call normal crimping a system designed to manipulate sailors into incurring financial obligations that they could only discharge by making slaves of themselves. It was certainly bad enough, but shanghaiing was worse. Shanghaiing was like freelance crimping. Rather than selling off sailors he'd enticed into his boarding house and encouraged to run up a debt, the crimp would simply prowl the streets with a blackjack looking for some stranger to clobber and roll up in a tarp and cash in. Shanghaiing had certain advantages. The upfront costs, obviously, were quite a bit lower. It's not the way most crimps like to operate because it was dangerous and left a trail of deadly enemies who occasionally returned to the port years later with vengeance on their minds. Also, skippers didn't much appreciate finding out that the old salt they'd signed on was a 19-year-old plowboy who'd never been on the water before. But at times, there weren't very many professional sailors in town and desperate ship captains would start raising the blood money bonuses they offered. The higher these bonuses got, the more tempted crimps were to fill their pockets with knockout drops and go out looking for someone to drink with, and, subsequently, Shanghai. Astoria, in particular, seems to have presented the crimps with this sort of dilemma frequently, to the point that they resorted to some desperate measures to try and get crew members. 
Historian Martha McCown recounts the experiences of one newcomer to Astoria, Mont Hawthorne, who came to the city in early 1880s and took a job cutting timber. Hawthorne was immediately warned by a neighbor to be on his guard. It seemed another neighbor had been kidnapped in the middle of the night out of his own cabin and hauled down to the waterfront and shipped out on a windjammer. Accordingly, Hawthorne took to lugging a rifle and a shotgun with him at all times when he was in the woods. He also packed a revolver on his hip when he had to go to town. Then one night, he was awakened by a huge racket at the door of his cabin. Someone was trying to force it open. Hawthorne bellowed a warning, which was ignored, so he put seven rifle bullets through the door. After that, he heard a great crashing through the brush. Audible, it seems, even over the ringing in his ears from having laid down a curtain of fire in a closed cabin with a rifle as the crimps beat a hasty and panicky retreat. They never bothered him after that. Or so the story goes. However, a couple of them did make an attempt on the town's Methodist minister, George Grannis. According to author Richard Dillon, Grannis went one Sunday to ring the bells in his church. On his way down the stairs, someone suddenly stepped up behind him and threw an overcoat over his head while another pinned his arms to his chest. The would-be Shanghaiers surely thought this would be a doddle. How hard could it possibly be to kidnap a preacher? Clergymen are the -the turn-the-other-cheek people, soft of voice and tender of foot. After all, who ever heard of a trained, successful prizefighter deciding to quit the ring and become a Methodist minister? Preposterous, right? Grannis kicked out at the place in space, which he was pretty sure contained one of his assailants, and was rewarded with the feel of a solid hit. The other one then lost his grip enough for Grannis to get a nice, productive headbutt in. The three of them tumbled down the stairs to the bottom, and when they got there, Grannis was on his feet and moving like a pro. A few violent, painful seconds later, his assailants decided they'd bitten off more than they could chew and ran for it. The next day, Grannis noticed one of the local crimps was missing a few teeth. And after that day, he was left in peace to minister to his flock. Key sources in this story have included works by Martha Ferguson McCown and Richard Dillon. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulplet Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶